Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Mies, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that they can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spreaker, and iTunes, where I encourage you to leave me a comment as well as a rating. You can also check out what's going on with the project, which by the way is more than a podcast, by checking out at leftpoc, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C, on social media. Finally, you can show your support and get additional updates about the project by donating a dollar or more on patreon.com slash leftpoc. In today's episode, I speak with Professor Anne-Marie Angelo about the Israeli Black Panthers, a group of Arab and North African Jews who expressed political dissent and made their grievances regarding poor living conditions, police brutality, and a lack of political representation, among many other issues very well known, following their founding in 1971. Anne-Marie is a cultural historian and professor at the University of Sussex. She holds a PhD in history from Duke University, where she studied the interactions between the U.S. civil rights movement and racial formations outside of the United States. In her forthcoming book, Global Freedom Struggle, The Black Panthers of Israel, the United Kingdom, and the United States, Professor Angelo examines the Black Panther movements of Israel and the United Kingdom in order to understand how Black power was transformed from an African-American movement to a global Black freedom struggle. The study draws upon a wide range of sources, including oral histories that she conducted, oral histories conducted by others, photographs, personal manuscripts, and police files, in order to center the role that people of color outside the United States played in confronting American and British imperialisms from the grassroots. Professor Angelo has held fellowships for Arabic and Middle Eastern studies and has also received several awards for mentoring, teaching, and student support. Here is our conversation. Hi, everyone. Today I am joined by Professor Anne-Marie Angelo. Anne-Marie, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Wendy, for having me. So um, I was really interested in your project for several reasons, one of which actually started a long time ago when I was speaking to a colleague of mine um, who herself identified as an Arab Israeli or an Israeli Jew um, of, of Arab descent. And she mentioned to me um, while living in New York that she felt incredibly white and she felt the whitest she'd ever felt in her entire life. <laughs> and so for me as a black person, I'm looking at my friend and I'm like, but you are white. I didn't fully understand what she meant by feeling white for the first time in her life. So I didn't, I didn't quite put two and two together. But the more and more we spoke about her past and her family's background, and she explained to me that there were all these sort of movements based around ethnic identity within Israel, being Arab Jews, um, and being, as they call themselves, Mizrahi, how there was a sense of difference, and how that there were even social movements in relation to this sense of difference and their place in Israeli society. So that was my first introduction to this idea of the Israeli Black Panthers. And so when I heard your talk at Aswad um, in Spain a few months ago, I was super interested in where you were taking this and more learning more about the history of the Israeli Black Panthers, how they came about, who they exactly were, and what their numbers and demands were. So if you could start us off just by giving a little bit of background about who the Israeli Black Panthers were, um, and again, where they're from, how they got their start, and what they were all about. Great. Thanks so much. It's always uh, interesting to hear the experiences of Mizrahi Jews um, in different places in the diaspora, because I, I think there is a vastly different sense of racial identity that Mizrahi Jews have within Israel, um, perhaps compared to in other parts of the world. So the Israeli Black Panthers were uh, a social movement that formed in early 1971. Uh, they were started by uh, a group of late teenaged young men, almost all men, in Jerusalem. They were essentially a group of friends who lived in a neighborhood called Muzrara, also known as Morasha. Um, and Muzrara was a neighborhood on the periphery. It was originally on the boundary between East and West Jerusalem. 
Uh, and then after the Six-Day War of 1967, Israel gained territory um, and gained control of the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, and so it was technically no longer on the border at that point, but the people who lived in that neighborhood certainly felt still on the periphery of society. Um, so Mizrawa was populated by people from uh, across the Middle East and North Africa, from Morocco, Yemen, Iraq, Lebanon. And they found that they had all been placed to live in the same neighborhood that was on the outskirts of the city, whereas most uh, European Jews or Ashkenazi Jews were living uh, in the city center. And their conditions of housing were uh, pretty bad. Um, some of them lived in houses um sorry, lived in apart apartment blocks or houses that were massively overcrowded. The founder of the organization, a, uh, a Moroccan Jew named Saadia Marziano, actually wrote a letter to the city government talking about the sewage that was running down his street. And he wrote this in the aftermath of the 67 war in hopes that now that his he and his friends no longer lived on the periphery, that they would get better treatment from the government. And that turned out to not be the case. So uh, this this group of friends began gathering at a at a community youth center and learning about uh, various struggles going on in different parts of the world. And they heard about uh, the struggle of the Black Panthers and the fact that the Panthers in the United States were standing up against a lot of the discrimination that African Americans were facing. Uh, and they found this really inspiring. They also knew that Golda Meir had lived in the United States and that the Black Panthers in the United States, at least within Israeli perceptions, but also among some other Jews' perceptions, had a reputation for uh, anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And they specifically took on the Black Panther name as a way of, as they, as they said, bringing a shock to the Israeli system. So they took on a name that they knew would be shocking um, rather than taking on a what would have been the name of a more reformist African-American organization such as the NAACP. So they made a series of demands in their first protest, which were essentially um, anti-poverty demands around housing, education, and employment, and then uh, a demand against police harassment, because many of the founding members of the organization um, had spent time in jail, uh, had been harassed, and in some cases beaten by the police, and they decided that they were fed up. And so they created their first kind of mass protest on the 3rd of March, 1971, and to advertise, they passed out flyers that declared that they had had enough, um, enough with living in over overcrowded conditions, enough with not having adequate schooling and being forced to learn Hebrew when for most of them their first language was Arabic, enough with not being able to find jobs once they had left school, and enough with being mistreated by the police. And their first protest uh, proved challenging to pull off because of requirements, uh, getting a permit to hold the event. And the city wanted to try to stop it from happening. But in the end, they were able to hold the event and gained a lot of support, both from other would-be Mizrahi Jews, and as well as from Ashkenazi university students, members of the, the, the Jewish left, from among the Ashkenazi population. Uh, so a, a fairly diverse group of people turned out in support. I, I just wanted to back up a little bit because we're sure. using a lot of terms that I'm thinking, hmm, does everyone know exactly what that means? And yes. even some of who these players are, right? Um, so I wanted to talk just briefly about the ethnic question that these these Mizrahi Jews are, are sort of organizing around. First of all, if you could talk a little bit more about what it means at this time, and you're talking, you know, late 60s, early 70s, what does it mean at this time to identify as someone who is Mizrahi or even Saf a Sephardic Jew, what those terms mean? Um, and then also, what how do Arab Jews sort of fit into the larger justification of the Israeli state, particularly one being built around um, suffering after the Holocaust or after, um, you know, expulsions from the USSR. Where do 
Arab Jews fit into this, particularly as their their narrative of struggle is quite different from those mm. of Ashkenazi Jews? Great questions. Thanks. Um, so Mizrahi uh, is the Hebrew word for Eastern. And at the time that we're talking about, these Jews were actually identified within Ashkenazi Israeli society as Oriental. Mm. Um, and that was the common language that was used. And actually, one of the most important things that the Israeli Black Panthers accomplished was that they began really using the language of Mizrahi Judaism. So up until this point, if you were someone who fell under Mizrahi or Eastern Jewish um, identity, you wouldn't have necessarily identified that way. You would have called yourself Moroccan or Iraqi or Yemeni um, because their dialects of Arabic were different. Uh, their own experiences of life in their previous countries had been very different based on the different places from which they had come. So the kind of creation of a, a Mizrahi ethnic identity as a pan identity to signify people who had come from the countries of the Middle East and North Africa really came about through the Black Panther organization. And as far as where they fit into um, kind of the founding of Israel and the post-Holocaust uh, experience of Jews, one of the one of the most, I guess, interesting parts about their development is that they were able to come to Israel. Um, some some came uh, through economic migration, but others came through not necessarily uh, through choice. Um, there are some reports of anti-Semitism in those countries, which they left. Um, there are also reports in other places of the Zionist Israeli government going to those countries and recruiting people quite heavily mm-hmm. um, in both um, in both outwardly you know propagandistic ways and then sometimes in covert ways so the the kind of simple fact of their existence in Israel was not necessarily presupposed by the founding of the Israeli state some did go because they wanted to or they feared anti-semitism in their countries and others were um, heavily recruited and encouraged to go mm-hmm. And one of the, the readings that you had sent me, actually, the, the author refers to, or at least I, I believe one of the people that he had interviewed refers to it as a sort of domestic diaspora, right? So a diaspora mm. within a diaspora, um, which sort of leads me back to this discussion of blackness. So why, <laughs> if you could explain why they decided to pick up that term, not just because of the the idea of the Black Panthers in the U.S., but it seems that there is some sort of racialization even within the Israeli context that they closely identified with this idea of blackness. Can you talk a bit about that and where that came from? Sure. Um, so, you know, one, um, one kind of simple fact to keep in mind is that they identified as black, given that by skin tone, their skin tone was darker than that of most European Jews, even though um, in an African diasporic sense, we wouldn't necessarily associate that. Um but on a much broader level, they kind of called down blackness as part of their identity because they arrived in Israel and they believed or um, kind of supposed that they were arriving in this socialist Zionist state. And um, upon their arrival, they found that uh, that they were often placed living in development towns, which were kind of town working class uh, towns on the periphery of the country, or in the case of people living in Mizrara, that they were placed on the outskirts of cities, that their provisions in terms of education, uh, healthcare, housing were far worse um, than those that European Jews were receiving. And again, they thought that they were arriving into a socialist country. Mm-hmm. Um, so this struck them as really surprising. And then on top of that, there were discussions uh, from leading figures within the country about fears that Arab Jews who were arriving were going to, quote unquote, levantize or levantize the country mm. and turn it 
more Eastern than its leaders wanted it to be. And there were various kind of racial slurs that were hurled, like particularly against Moroccan Jews, but also against um, any Jews who didn't hail from European countries. So they really faced a sense of being racialized as an other. And there wasn't necessarily a language for that because, again, the um, the kind of ideology behind the founding of the state of Israel was uh, around a concept of a melting pot, mm-hmm. of a place where all Jews could come and have a home. And they suddenly found that their home looked quite different to some of their European neighbors. And so this created a kind of sense of consciousness among particularly second generation immigrants to the country who started to talk about this and to meet other Mizrahi or people of color um, from other neighborhoods who were experiencing the same thing. And they, and through these discussions, there became an awareness that they had been given the equivalent of what we would in the U S we would have called second class citizenship. Mm -hmm. Um, and this awareness led them to want to challenge what the government was presenting as a socialist Zionist ideal. So one thing too that that your comments here make me consider is so the the neighborhood that you had mentioned earlier was literally called the seam, if I'm not mistaken, right? It mm-hmm. was the, the nickname of it because it was on sort of the fault lines between um, the the sort of Arab states and as well as as Palestinian um, spaces and the the newly formed Israeli state, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's right. Yes. Um, so this sort of spatial and geographic um, layout also is is highly symbolic in and of itself. And I was wondering where do Palestinians fit into this, um, particularly because I'm assuming that some of these um, Arab Jews or Mizrahi Jews are also necess- like potentially from Palestine, right? Um, They're people who may have grown up there under uh, Palestinian governance. So where do they fit and how do they differentiate themselves, if at all, are they even trying to do that, between how do they differentiate themselves as Israelis versus Palestinian Arabs and the like? What are the the fault lines politically there? Yeah, so um, one important thing I think for um, us to keep in mind is that um, that spatial geographic difference um, or separation was was massively important, not only politically, but also as a fact of life and as something that kind of precluded certain types of organizing. So Arab Jews living in Israel were technically not allowed to enter Palestine hmm. um, at this point in time. And so to be interested in the Palestinian cause was possible, but the opportunities for coalition were severely curtailed by the security of the Israeli state. But that, with that said, it became, uh, in some ways, a major dividing issue within the organization. So the some members of the organization, a number of whom were Iraqi, wanted to meet with the PLO. And in fact, one member, Kokavi Shemesh, traveled uh, into Palestine in 1972 and and met with members of the PLO. And so there was interest and there was effort and yet to form alliances. And yet organizationally, some other members of the organization, uh, the Black Panthers, felt that it, it was in the group's best interest to maintain focus on their grassroots organizing within their own neighborhoods for various reasons, Um, some of those being that they hadn't yet achieved their aims within those neighborhoods, but then also uh, some of the individuals who didn't want to really venture across the border, I believe, faced greater vulnerability within the Israeli state. A lot of them were Moroccan, and Moroccan Jews were the subject of the greatest amount of racism among all of the Mizrahi population. Um, and we're, you know, I would argue we're most likely uh, to be criminalized and prosecuted if they were to have been caught crossing the border. So, so there were kind of multiple um, crisscrossing lines of, of, of possibility, but also of vulnerability that I think led to their not being perhaps as much of a coalition with Palestinians mm-hmm. as we might, you know, as we might have wanted there to be, or as we might kind of assume that there might naturally could have been. Mm-hmm. 
why, just going back a bit, why was there more um, discrimination towards uh, or against Moroccan Jews? If you could talk a little bit more about that, what was the situation? Sure. Moroccan Jews had essentially... um, among the among the Mizrahi immigrant groups that came into the country, Moroccans were a con- considerable sized group, um, but they were also a group that had come from, and I say this in rel- in very relative terms, but had come from greater relative poverty than some of the other Middle Eastern groups who entered the country. So, comparatively speaking. I think 36% of um, Iraqis who were immigrants into the country had been in white-collar jobs hmm. in Iraq before before um, migrating into Israel, um, versus Moroccans had largely come from, there were some middle-class Iraqis, uh, sorry, middle-class Moroccans, but a, a greater percentage of those had come from tougher economic economic circumstances. Um, And so they were racialized due to their lower economic standing, but also perceptions of Moroccans as, I I hesitate to want to kind of um, resurrect some of the ethnic slurs, but Mm -hmm. um, as as more backward, as, um, as more unclean, as as more potentially damaging to um, the kind of image and reputation of a proud socialist country than were some of the other migrants. And I also, I'm wondering too, if there's again, a sort of geographic and if not ethnic reason for that as well. I mean, these Moroccans are African technically, right? Yes. Um, Versus, you know, Middle Eastern or even European. So I'm wondering um, if they're, their Africanness also sort of contributes to their treatment, perhaps even within and among other Mizrahi Jews. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. The other, you know, the other kind of key African group or one of the largest was Egyptian Jews and Egyptian Jews had come from a slightly different kind of Judaism within Egypt had a slightly different um, socioeconomic standing Mm -hmm. than it did for many Moroccans. And certainly um, the darker skin tone of many Moroccans led to them being racialized as closer to black, if we might say it that way, Mm -hmm. um, than, than other Middle Eastern and North African Jews. So they really found themselves in um, a much more, vulnerable position than really any other group, I would argue. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you more too about this, speaking of proximity to blackness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You had mentioned to me that this project, this aspect of your project is actually a very small part of it, right? This idea of the the Israeli Black Panthers. You actually speak Mm -hmm. more about other forms of political blackness and other um, iterations, including the original iteration of the Black Panthers in the United States and elsewhere. If you could talk a bit about your entire project and where this particular aspect of your project fits into the whole Sure. Um, So uh, I'm currently writing a book um, called Global Freedom Struggle, which is uh, about the Black Panthers of the UK, uh, the US and Israel. And one of the things I'm really trying to think through in the book is why many different groups outside the United States, in fact, groups uh, of people of color in six different countries became Black Panthers sort of at the same time or slightly after uh, the founding of the U.S. Black Panther Party. So a significant portion of my book explores the British Black Panther movement, who were comprised of of people from the Caribbean, um, from South Asia, and from West Africa. And they found um, that the Black Panther kind of political uh, ideology and style gave them the opportunity to create or to attempt to create a kind of pan-ethnic identity among people of color within Britain. So crucially, they were interested, although the majority of the group was from the Caribbean, they were also interested in the involvement, for example, of South Asians in in London. Um, And so that group existed. It was the first group to form outside the United States, and they existed from 1967 to 73. Uh, So 
existed a few years prior to the Israeli Black Panthers, but interestingly, um, also supported them. So when the Israeli Black Panthers held their first protest in March 1971, a group of British Panthers marched on the Israeli embassy in London in support of their comrades in Israel. So I think this was a particular moment, uh, historically speaking, when there was a sense of fluidity around what blackness meant um, and kind of the political power that came with claiming one's own identity as a person of color mm-hmm. um, and recognizing that you know that the specific term black for people meant not simply a sense of group identification, although that was massively important, but it also meant a sense of political calling and of political identity uh, that people realized they could share whether their background was North African, Middle Eastern, Caribbean, South Asian. And it defied in many ways the sort of classical um, structures or groupings that were given to people based Mm -hmm. on the specific places they came from. It was, it was a, a broader kind of diasporic identity, I think, of people, of my, my argument in the book is that it's, um, it's, it's an identity of displaced people of color. Um, and that can mean people who are from the Middle East. It can mean people who are from the more traditionally received parts of the African diaspora. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, too, is that not only does Blackness sort of exists as this unifying element, but from what I've read of your work, it also seems to be a space where there is quite a considerable amount of breakdown. Um, mm. And you mentioned at one point, I believe you and another writer as well had mentioned that there were some tensions around the use by the Israeli Black Panthers of the term black. Um, could you talk a bit about that and how that played out in the larger global idea of Black Panthers and blackness itself? Sure. Um I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Black Panthers in Israel were aware that there were perceptions of anti-Semitism among Black Panthers in the United States, Um, and they took that identity on very Mm -hmm. self-consciously in light of that. And so um, they knew that to call themselves Black and to call themselves Black Panthers would raise curiosity and awareness, um, particularly they thought or hoped among American Jews, who they knew were uh, significant, many of whom were significant donors um, to the fledgling Israeli state. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a big part of it. But there was also um, a way in which Black um, and blackness had been a slur that had been used against Mizrahi Jews. And they chose again to kind of call themselves black in a, in a, in a way of reclaiming that identity to give new definition to the use of the term uh, of the term black that had been kind of used to castigate them. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, kind of allowed for a a kind of reclaiming of identity. But there were other groups, um, other social groups uh, within Israel who were interested in, you know, the identity of Moroccans or in the identity of of North African Jews who hadn't chosen to use this term black. Because to use it suggested that there was significant there was a significant ethnic divide, that there was racism uh, within Israel, and not all of um, the migrant groups and certainly not the Israeli government were quite prepared to acknowledge the level of um, socioeconomic division and structural racism that existed. So it was quite controversial to call themselves black when that hadn't traditionally been used before. And it seems like I'm sorry. It seems like it was also controversial at, at this point among other Black Panthers, or like in the U.S. For example, yes, right. So, if I remember correctly, Angela Davis, I believe, takes issue with the use of the term "black" on the the Israeli Black Panthers uh, side, and also this there's this other disconnect of the U.S. Black Panthers being more or less explicitly in support of Palestine, right, and Palestinian rights. So I'm wondering, how did they kind of navigate those waters? We're like, we're going to use this idea that you guys started, but we disagree with certain political aspects. How did they kind of deal with that? Um, 
just in a yeah. rhetorical sense? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things that um, is good to keep in mind here is the relative, at least in the beginning, at least in the founding moments of this organization, the relative lack of knowledge hmm. about the Panthers in the United States, right? So anything they knew was either coming to them through newspapers that had been translated into Hebrew um, or articles, rather, that had been translated into Hebrew and appeared in Israeli national newspapers or through um, interactions with members of the Ashkenazi left, some of whom were American students, for example, who were studying at the Hebrew University. So in the early stages, I would say that what they gathered was what made the headlines. Um, and over time, as, for example, the Panthers in the U.S. Um, took an explicitly pro-Palestinian stance, I would say that the Israeli Panthers, some of them took this information on and really tried to push the organization in that di direction. And then others wanted to really focus on the grassroots concerns of their neighborhoods mm -hmm. and felt that the international questions for them were going to be incredibly fraught. So I think in that sense, um, it was a messy adaptation. You know, I wouldn't call it a necessarily perhaps a parallel organization. Mm -hmm. In some ways, aspects were adapted. Um, and then in other ways, certain aspects of the American Panthers were let go. Because as you note, the, you know, the, the sort of levels of blackness or the gradations of blackness or the ways in which, which ethnicity played out within Israel meant that um, there was an effort especially after the Black Panther movement by some people who had been involved in it to distance themselves from the concerns of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I don't think that they represented necessarily the same aims as the U.S. movement. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was interesting as well is their the Israeli Black Panthers' relationship to the press. So, mm -hmm. um, and I would love to hear a bit more about that, but it seems that seems to be a, a place of parallel, right? Um, sort of the ways that they use aesthetics and their politics to kind of um, claim a space in within the Israeli press, um, much like the Black Panthers had used aesthetics and certain political choices um, and even displays, public displays, um, to kind of claim their space within the press and sort of define themselves in a more public space and a more public conscious consciousness. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that and how, I mean, were they received well by the press in Israel or mm. were they more or less um, receiving a similar reception as the Black Panthers in the U.S.? Yeah, um, they certainly were very conscious, you know, even when they chose the name for their organization, conscious and I would say hopeful that they would get attention for their aims and concerns. Mm -hmm. And that definitely became the case. So their name was a memorable one because the consciousness around the American Black Panthers was already strong within Israel. And so they noted that they would get little mentions in the press in the early days where other groups wouldn't necessarily get them. And their protest style, similarly to the Panthers in the United States, was very visual, um, very embodied. And so... For example, um, during one of their most famous protests, they carried three coffins into Zion Square that they um, members held on their shoulders. And attached to these coffins were different words related to things that they wanted to bury, such as poverty, racism. Yeah. And this, of course, was interesting for photographers, for journalists, um, and resulted in greater publicity for the organization. In terms of how they were perceived, there were members of the white left who were sympathetic to their causes, but there were also a lot of people who didn't speak well of them. So Golda Meir's famous quotation after meeting with the Black Panthers in the week of their first protest, um, she kind of was reporting back to the media and she said, these are not nice people. Hmm. 
And although, you know, today that by our standards, that probably seems fairly mild within political <laughs> discourse. Um, at the time, it was it was really um, an effort to downplay their concerns, to downplay their humanity and to sort of push them out of the public eye. But over time, support for their movement grew. So they ended up spreading into about 23 different towns across Israel. They had large public protests over this kind of concentrated period from 1971 to 73. So um, they actually gained a lot of attention. And I think in some ways, my years lambasting of them um, contributed to that. So this is interesting, too, because Golda Meir is, of course, a woman um, mm-hmm. and a woman with great political power uh, at the time. And I'm wondering, where were the women in the Israeli Black Panthers? Because in the U.S. case, there are quite a few black women who are involved in leadership or even behind the scenes doing quite a bit of work. Um, and they become oftentimes the face of the Black Panthers in the press, right? There are all these interviews and, and photographic displays and the like of women with afros and women making speeches and things like that. I'm wondering, were there women involved in the Israeli Black Panthers and, and what some of those women did in terms of their political involvement? So the actual membership of the organization was nearly all male. Hmm. Um, There were a few women who were involved as members. Um, That said, similar to how you've described the women in the Panthers in the U.S., there were many women who behind the scenes did a lot of the administrative work, a lot of the day-to-day care work and support work that the organization needed. So there's a photograph of a meeting in a member, Ruben Abergel's home, in which um, the group is discussing a manifesto that they're, they have sitting out in front of them. And in the corner of the photograph, Ruben's wife is sleeping because she had been doing all the work to prepare for the meeting. Um, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. Preparing food for, uh, for everyone coming over and also caring for the, her family and is probably exhausted at that point. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I think that women, in the case of the Israeli Panthers, did not largely become the public face of the organization. Um, And there are various reasons for that. One being that the members tended to come from heavily masculinized societies. And another being that um, the aspects of criminalization and police harassment that were critical to the founding of the organization had been mainly experienced up until this point by male youth. Mm -hmm. Um, With that said, over the course of the Panthers' existence, many women got involved in their protests. Many of those women got arrested and experienced the same kinds of violent harassment that that men had. So there was female involvement, and, um, and yet there was some internal sexism, I would argue, around um, allowing women or having women as the kind of speaking forefront of the organization. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's an interesting um, sort of juxtaposition because, again, you have a woman who is, and I believe Golda Meir is of Ashkenazi descent, right? She, yes. she identifies as Europe, of European descent. Um, and to have this sort of contrast of a quote-unquote white Jewish person um, and a woman in power versus a quote-unquote black group of Jewish people and predominantly men. Mm. Um, I'm wondering sort of of the, even the the political meaning in that, right, on the larger, sort of larger display for the country. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it contributes to this sense um, that existed among members of the Ashkenazi Jewish establishment of backwardness, mm-hmm. um, of Mizrahi Jews coming from places in which, you know, it was perceived that women were less liberated, that women were less able to have a political a, a voice in the public sphere. I think that that was, yeah, a very conscious thing. In fact, one member I interviewed his uh, wife participated in the interview and, in fact, translated the interview between us. And she told me about having it, the experience. So if um, 
if women produced a certain number of children for the Israeli state, they were given a special award by the government. Wow. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, so, and Mizrahi women in particular, um, that was seen to be their role within Israeli society um, mm. because um, because they because Mizrahi Jews were seen as the labor class, the working class within Israel. Women were meant to produce as many children as possible um, in order to keep that working class thriving. And that was rewarded by the government if you produced, I don't remember offhand exactly how many children it was, but it was a sizable number. Um, and so that was kind of seen as your role at that point in time by the, uh, by the nation. Hmm. It's so it seems so inverted, right? I mean, I'm used to hearing uh, society saying no working class people do not have any more kids, right? Like mm. sort of discouraging um, poor people from having kids and even creating a sort of pathology, or at least a pol you know a politicization of of this as a pathology, right? Of poor people who can't control themselves, and that also sort of contributing to um, the racialization of the poor, the racialization potentially people of color and the like. So that's that's interesting that they were encouraged mm -hmm. to have more children. And they were actually the numerical majority at the time of the formation of the Black Panthers, were they not? That's right. Yeah. So around the time of the Six Day War in 1967, um, they comprised the numerical majority and still do today. Hmm. That's really interesting because, again, I think in the in the press, at least in the U.S. side, what we mainly see the Ashkenazi representation, right? We don't, we still don't see very much of, um, you know, Mizrahi Jews as the, the face of, of Israel beyond Israel. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the, the, the sort of socialist aspects of the yeah. Zionist project, right? The Jewish yeah. the establishment of the Jewish state and where the Israeli Black Panthers fit in this, because it seemed to yeah. be, a, there's a slight disconnect um, between the sense of ethnic nationalism um, and the economic socialist project, especially if you're, if you're identifying perhaps as someone who's of Moroccan descent um, and not quite right. Israeli or who maybe identifies right. as Israeli, but has, um, socialist leanings that are even further to the left of the state and the Zionist project. Right. So there was a, a, a you know, a sense in which Israelis who migrated to Israel or who were second generation immigrants were very much encouraged to accept this kind of um, socialist melting pot ideal that was framed around, of course, a shared Jewish identity, but also around a sort of a, a left-leaning or a classically liberal sense of tolerance and acceptance. And those who came from the countries that were from the Middle East, or those who were from the Middle East and North Africa, when they arrived and they found themselves, in fact, not wholly incorporated into that under that Zion, Zionist umbrella, if you will, this sort of led them to identify differently, you know, the, the sense of, of, of having something more in common with your immediate neighbors in your neighborhood um, than with a lot of other people that you might see around you in a city led them to think of themselves as somehow separate within the eyes of the government, but then also within their their own kind of renderings of their relationship to the state. So they felt as though, um, and they felt as though this was like a distinctively stratified class grouping for them. Mm -hmm. So um, so this kind of created a, a working class identity that, that was really was um, almost entirely synonymous with Mizrahi identity. And this sort of flew in the face of what the Israeli government had been saying about the creation of a, a kind of socialist ideal, mm -hmm. right? It suggested that, in fact, you know, not all of the wealth in the country was being shared equally um, among people. And that, you know, Kokavi Shemesh, one of the Panthers, talked to me about how, you know, they distinctly... Um, argued that American Jews were contributing money to um, to this kind of socialist Zionist state, and yet they weren't, they, the Black Panthers, were not seeing any money go to the peripheries, go to the places in which they lived. And so for them, there was kind of a, a distinct disconnect. And 
because this hadn't yet been realized publicly, it was a difficult argument to make at the time. Um, they faced a lot of resistance for simply claiming that there was racialized stratification within the country. And although today I think we take this as 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 given in you know mo- almost all parts of the world, at the time to say it was really to undermine the ethos of the entire state project. So it was it was not only a threat. Um, to their own well-being, but it was a threat to the state, or it was perceived as a threat to the state to say this. Mm-hmm. And there, in in terms of their relationship with the state, were they ever incorporated in some way, or did they ever? Did any of the Israeli Black Panthers pursue politics themselves? And what did what sort of parties were they joining later on? Yeah, so they were. In the initial days, um, there were reformist efforts to kind of incorporate their concerns. So immediately after their first protest, Golda Meir met with them, as I talked about earlier, and she set up a committee to explore the concerns of ethnic youth, So, uh, in, in in her terminology. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> not it reminds me um, of like nowadays, you know, anyone who's non-white is, is ethnic. It's just so interesting that they are still using something similar to that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, an effort, it, you know, I think it's always right. It's, it's a real effort to not want to, to use the language of race mm-hmm. because that leads to allegations of racism. But if you can sort of put it under an ethnic grouping that, that somehow seems less threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's at least my read. Um, but obviously, um, out of that, there was there was funding set aside for the concerns of Mizrahi youth, but that largely, of course, failed to accomplish the kind of change that the Panthers wanted. Um, and so, in 1973, they began to sort of gather momentum and interest in national politics. So, one of a couple of their members became leaders in the Histadrut, which was the National Labor Union. Mm-hmm. And one of their members, Charlie Beaton, became a member of the Knesset, so a member of parliament, on on a Black Panther ticket from 1977 to 1992. He served uh, as an MK. They formed a coalition as well with um, the Social Democrats. And um, one of their members, uh, Reuven Abergil, became involved in Hadash, which was a communist-leaning party. Over time, uh, they've tended to lean more to the right as uh, Mizrahis in general. That said, um, a number of the most vocal Black Panthers um, still are in support of some of the recent leftist organizing that's been taking place within Israel. So the Jerusalem housing protests of 2011, for example, Kokavi Shemesh talked about being contacted by current Israeli leftist activists asking for advice because mm-hmm. they were the Panthers were kind of the last really strong leftist movement within Israel. Um, so they sort of were sought out. Um, one of the days I interviewed Kokavi, he was appearing on national radio, giving advice to activists. Others went. Charlie Beaton spoke at the protests. Um, Vin Abergil worked with with um, protests uh, protesters and also worked with a group of protesting African refugees uh, a few years um, before that. So there really is um, a kind of interest in infusion of some of the ideals of the movement into a lot of the contemporary organizing that's happening right now. And oftentimes, um, I think in the West, we don't hear much about that. Mm -hmm. There's um, such an effort um, to censor mainstream media that takes place that often, you know, we we hear a lot about, um, we hear a lot more about um, the Israel-Palestine conflict and the occupation, and we don't often hear about some of the dissent that is happening within the Israeli state. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm curious too about the, you know, are are there any more Black Panthers that are involved in political organizing today? And is is there sort of because I mean, you mentioned that they are connecting, they're making connections with, you know, the more contemporary leftist movement, um, or at least the leftist movement now is trying to make connections, I should say, in their direction, but where are 
most of the former members, what are they doing politically, if anything at all? And what sort of created the breakdown? Um, why are we, you know, why am I speaking of the Israeli Black Panthers in the past more than mm-hmm. the present? What sort of led to their dissolution um, later on? Um, a number of things. Um One is that they were um, pretty quickly infiltrated by the government. Mm. And I talk about this in the book. Um, They, this has been recognized in public documents um, that um, there was a member who was placed who was, for example, providing Molotov cocktails to the organization. And this was of course leading to greater possibilities of incrimination Mm -hmm. um, and arrest so that, you know, and, and that person was acting as an informant to the government. Um, and it's believed by some members that further informants um, became part of the organization as a result of that. But on top of that, some of the Panthers uh, have passed away. So Saudia Marziano passed away um, a few years ago. Um, a man named Danny Sa'il, who uh, was Iraqi and did a lot of organizing elsewhere in the country, went back to Iraq um, because he grew really fed up with conditions in Israel um, and became really involved in um, in the political left in Iraq um, and actually passed away there. And then others um, have stayed really involved, um, not necessarily in party politics, Although Charlie Beaton is the is the kind of strongest example of someone who you know took a political route, was elected to the Knesset, and worked there for fifteen years, and is now retired. Uh, others have stayed really involved with on the ground um, grassroots organizing, and I think the most emblematic of this um, is Ruven Abergil, who is Moroccan um, and is still very involved, thinking about the concerns of African refugees. Um, he gives a Black Panther memory tour of Musrara to kind of bring people in the current climate to even understand that um, that dissent has been a political fact within Israel, mm-hmm. right? So the the needle is pushed, you know, to, far to the right at the moment, um, and to even kind of keep that discourse alive is part of what he sees as his own political work. And then he's he's involved with um, an organization that um, documents the effects of the occupation. Some others, I think, grew frustrated with the kind of liminal space that their organization occupied. Um, so, you know, raising concerns about um, the conditions of life for Mizrahi Jews, wanting to think about something broader especially in terms of alliance and coalition with Palestinians Mm -hmm. and found that organizationally that was very difficult to realize for some of the reasons I mentioned. Some people didn't agree with it, um, were more interested in local grassroots neighborhood organizing within their own communities um, for the security reasons that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And Kokavi Shemesh, who was kind of the ideological leader, the thinker of the group, if you will, um, or the, the kind of the, the most outspoken thinker of the group. Um, he did actually go to East Germany in late in the mid 1970s where he met with Angela Davis. He got involved in some kind of pan leftist organizing. Um, but you know, one of the things that the European left sort of could have given more attention to at the time and since has come along quite a long way was around the Palestinian question um, and around questions of the needs of people of color more broadly. Um, And at the time, I I don't think that was exactly where the European left was. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of coalition wouldn't have really produced what people like Kokavi Shemesh was hoping for either. Um, so there was a, an absence of, of some of the formations that we see today in terms of, in terms of Palestinian organizing within Israel, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the Black Panthers in the U.S. were very much recognizing the occupation and the, um, the kind of imperialist um, 
goals and machinations of the Israeli government at that point in time. So a, a real sort of disconnect on that particular issue. Mm-hmm. One of my last questions about the, the Israeli Black Panthers, um, you had mentioned that several had gone to the right um, and that the majority of this Mizrahi population identifies politically on the right. I am really shocked by this. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe I shouldn't be. Um, but I, I, and this is one of the, one of the reasons why I'd asked the question about the sort of the seeming disconnect between um, the sort of socialist underpinnings of the Zionist project and the Mizrahi Jews themselves politically, because it, it, I don't know, I found it surprising. And I wondered if mm-hmm. there was, Um, an attempt to also sort of define the self in opposition to uh, the Palestinian cause. If you could talk a bit about that, because especially if if they are physically, right, like phenotypically similar, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to the quote-unquote enemy that's framed by the state, how do they then define themselves within the Israeli state as part of the Israeli state? They're kind of, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a liminal space for them, right? Um, So I'm wondering if if the rightward shift has anything to do with that or if it's a completely separate um, sort of political formation? It certainly does. Um, I I remember someone I interviewed early in this project who was not a member of the Black Panthers, um, but is um, of Mizrahi origin and had lived in Israel for quite some time, talked about what it's like to have been arrested um, or stopped by the police in Zion Square because of the the color of his skin, mm-hmm. and to have been accused of being there illegally, i.e., assumed to be Palestinian um, because he had distinctly darker skin tone than other people around him. The interesting thing about that person's story is that they also had an identity document or were able to produce an identity document that. That, that showed that they were not, in fact, Palestinian. Um, and that, you know, that sort of claim to belonging actually resulted in a, in a claim to differentiation as well, right? And something that's understandable from that person's point of view, um, wanting to get away from the, the arrest of the police, um, but I think in a larger sense has contributed to uh, Mizrahi Jews in general um, kind of being concerned with the kind of strength of their um, economic development um, and wanting to sort of maintain themselves as as full, you know, as 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 full members of the state of Israel, and as much as that is politically possible for them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I didn't really know anything about this subject at all many years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And the more and more I learn about it, the more fascinating I think it is, particularly considering every time we hear about Israel in the news, as you said, there's sort of a dominant narrative. We don't hear as much about dissent that's taking place within the country um, on a variety of levels. And so sort of learning about the history of that uh, through this angle, I think is, is really important and, and worth discovering more and more about in the future. Um, so your work is obviously a huge contribution to that, and I, I really appreciate it. Speaking of your work, uh, I noted that <laughs> I noticed that you were on strike, or you've been off and on strike. I'd love to hear a bit more about what's going on at your university and in the UK in general, uh, as we're speaking about social movements, right? Um, we have so many teacher strikes going on in the US, um, mm. and I've I've noticed that this is not just a U.S. phenomenon, right? There's certainly mm-hmm. an international component. So if you would like to speak a bit about that, since you are involved, I'd love to hear more. Sure. Um, and thanks thanks very much for your kind words. Um, uh, so I'm part of uh, what's called the University and College Union um, at the University of Sussex, where I work. Um, it's a national union. Uh, and we're currently um, in dispute with an organization called Universities UK, which is the governing body of um, universities throughout the country, over uh, a, ma- a proposed a significant change to our pension um, that would essentially result in the loss of roughly £10,000 per year per person wow. um, in retirement. This is part of a long-term neoliberalization of higher education that's being take that's been taking place in the UK over about the past 15 years, I'd say. And 
in many ways, um, it's, inter- it's, it's interesting um, in the sense that many of the things that are happening here happened long ago in the United States because mm-hmm. the U.S. has, you know, higher ed has been marketized in the United States for um, a considerable amount of time, right. generally right since its founding. So, um, <laughs> so you know, this has resulted in the things like the imposition of tuition fees. And a really important one right now is that enrollment caps have been lifted. So it used to be the case that universities were told by the government a certain number of students that they could enroll. And um, just recently, the government lifted the enrollment cap. And what this may well lead to is the shuttering of um, less elite institutions within Mm. the country. Um, So there are 61 institutions right now that are on strike. Um, It's the largest form of industrial action that's ever taken place in the UK, uh, higher education sector. And we uh, we had 14 days of national strike action um, at the end of February and the first half of March. This has led to um, a proposal or two proposals rather from the employers, um, the first of which was roundly rejected by all of the branches. Um, the second of which has been sent to a ballot of members, which not all branches believed should have been sent to ballot. Um, but we're currently voting on a proposal that would create um, a, a joint panel that would revalue our pension fund and provide perhaps new proposals or could possibly also recycle some of the proposal that we were already uh, given earlier uh, in March. So the vote um, lasts through tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by tomorrow evening, we should probably know if we're going to continue striking um, in May and June, or if the strike is finished, in which case we will be watching the work of that panel very carefully and be prepared to ballot nationally to go on strike again in the next academic year if we need to. So it's uh, it's a fraught time, but it's also been um, uh, an incredibly invigorating time, I would say. Um, it's been exhausting and exciting at the same time. At our branch, we've had a lot, a lot of strike sing-alongs, which have been fantastic. <laughs> um, we've rewritten the words to everything from Cher to Dolly Parton um, to the Beatles. And we've seen some strong support from students. Our student union has been fantastic. Um, And one of the most meaningful things for me has just been getting to know other colleagues. Um, So the way that our system is set up, and as is the case at many universities over here, we're often in competition with other departments for students. um, And that comes with a lot of financial implications. And so... Um, you don't often get to know colleagues that are, you know, perhaps working on similar issues as you, but um, a slightly different discipline. So, mm-hmm. so that part alone has been great. I now know a lot more scholars working on, um, working on um, race, working on issues related to people of color, um, social movements. You know, so I think what. Um, has been a trying time, has actually been fruitful in a lot of ways. And I look forward to kind of seeing, I think there's a lot of talk of rank and file movement. I've joined a, a rank and file national conversation that's going on nice. um, to to push things because our um, our union is is working hard, but it's not always, um, not always necessarily representing all of the members. Um, so we're working on that. That's awesome. Um, I know that today's Thursday, the 12th of April, so by the time this podcast comes out, the strike might actually be over. Um, But nevertheless, if it's still going on, I wish you all the best of luck. And if it's done at the time, I hope that you all were able to sort of at least get the ball rolling uh, for some of your demands being met. Is there a website or anywhere that people can learn more about the strike? Yes. Um, So the website of our union is ucu.org.uk. That's the best place to go. And then if you go on Twitter and you check the hashtag UCU strike or USS strike, um, there is a ton of activity going on. And I especially want to highlight the work of a group called um, at USS Briefs. Um, they've, uh, they're a grassroots group of, of 
scholars from all over the country who've put together an incredible set of about 17 different um, one to two page documents um, that highlight the history of higher ed, neoliberalization, and what's been going on in the strike. So it's a good resource to check out. That sounds great. Well, again, thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining me today. This is really fascinating. Um, and I hope that people can learn more about your project and your upcoming book project, um, as well as the Black Panthers in Israel and other groups um, that did similar work around the time in the 60s and 70s, as well as obviously your strike. Uh, they can check more out in the show notes. So thanks so much again, Anne-Marie. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to episode 15 of the Left Pocket Project podcast. As always, you can stay caught up with the podcast on SoundCloud, Spreaker, and iTunes, and get more information about the project via social media by searching for Left POC. And finally, while I always appreciate donations on Patreon, you can also show your support by liking, sharing, and telling a friend, family member, or coworker about the Left Pocket Project. Thanks again for listening, and have a good one.